following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Our family took a trip this uh, past summer. We went up to Maryland to visit family. And during that trip, my brother and I had a chance to go swimming in the river. And uh, if you know anything about the tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay, you'll know that they're rather murky. You can barely see down a foot into the water. My brother and I, he's, he's about 12, 13 years old, were walking out to the edge of this dock. And he looks over at me, and I can see the trepidation in his eyes. And he said, if you jump, I'll jump. And we both eventually jump in the water. And it reminded me as I was looking at this text that so often we're looking for those things in life. We're looking for the assurances that everything's going to be okay, that there is nothing to fear. But in reality, God's people have a lot that we could fear. There's a lot of things in our passage this evening that Barak could be afraid of, and indeed he is afraid of. 900 chariots, Jabin, Sisera, an army that's laid siege to Israel for 20 years. And yet the reality is that we need to know, despite all the fears, all the things going on around us, the murky water and the uncertainty that lies beneath, that God is present and God is is able to save his people. And so that's, the, I think, the two really hinge points of this passage before us. Judges chapter 4 hinges on those two attributes of God, namely his omnipresence and his omnipotence. A passage before us teaches that God demonstrates both his saving presence and his sovereign power by the destruction of Sisera and the destruction of Sisera's army. And so we'll look at this in those two parts, the presence and the power of God, verses 1 through 16, the presence of God shown over and over again to his people, and then verses 17 through 23, the power, the omnipotence, the sovereignty of God in the midst of all this turmoil and even unrest. And so God demonstrates first his saving presence. You'll notice in verses 1 through 3, we have an introduction here. Again, this cycle of the judges we see brought to our attention. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. There's this cycle we know in the judges of sin, of suffering, of crying out to God, and of his ultimate deliverance of them. And yet here in verse 1, we see that word again. They're adding sin upon sin, judgment upon judgment, and they are bringing that judgment upon themselves, a reminder to us that God is ever faithful to bring his judgment even against sin, even as he is faithful to bring grace to his people. Think of that theme in Judges, especially as we get to chapter 17 of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the state of Israel at the time. We see the rebellion of Israel, that God is showing his sovereign presence, his saving presence, even here when Israel is in complete rebellion against him. 
Even when Israel has come again, gone back to her vomit, if you will, the vomit of sin, of destruction, of judgment, yet God is present. Look at verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. This is a sign even of God's faithfulness to his promises. God's God's faithfulness is not only when uh, when he is helping his people, when he is building them up and encouraging them and reminding them of his faithfulness and his his kindness to them, but also when God brings judgment, he is showing his faithfulness. He is showing his presence that he is ever with his people. So even in the midst of rebellious morals, of rebellious sin, we see this presence of God. And throughout the passage, God is the main actor. It's not about Deborah, it's not about Barak, and it's not about Jael. Ultimately, this is the work of God. Behold what he has done. And that's really what we are getting at this evening. Not only the rebellious morals showing God's faithfulness to keep his promise, even of judgment, but also rebellious leadership. We see that the commander of the army, Sisera, is coming. He has laid siege on the people for 20 years with these 900 chariots of iron, oppressing the people cruelly for 20 years. But then we get in verse 4, this woman brought into the story. And it's very arresting as you read the text, especially in the Hebrew. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, is normally how it's translated. But when you read in the Hebrew, it's Deborah, a woman, a prophetess. She was judging Israel. And then she is also described even as the wife of Lapidoth. Right? She is again and again, we are reminded that she is fulfilling a position that is not normative. This is not a position that she was supposed to be in. And here the sign of rebellious leadership comes again and again. You'll notice that she is not. So many commentators, as I'm reading through and you you look at this passage, so many say she is the deliverer of God's people. She is not. Again and again, you see in this passage that God is the deliverer, even through his calling of Barak. And that she is in this position because of the failure in Israel, because of Israel's sin and lack of leadership. This female leadership is not a sign of what should be followed today, but rather a sign of desperation, a sign of sin, a sign of male complacency. And it is not at all something that we should emulate. And so we need to be very mindful as we look at this passage, as we look at any of Scripture, to remember that just because it's in the Bible does not make it normative, does not mean, well, it's there, therefore we do it. But to remember, we have to look at what's going on. Israel is in desperate sin and is in desperation as far as their leadership is concerned. She ultimately also falls out of the narrative after verse 14, if you notice. Barak comes back in verse 22. Yet she falls out of the narrative, interestingly enough. She is also not in our list that we read from Hebrews chapter 11. Or in 1 Samuel chapter, I believe it's 21, where again, this reminder to God's people of what God has done for them through the judges comes out again. Yet Deborah is not there. Only Barak remains as a sign of God's deliverer, as the one who brought deliverance. And so we see this cycle, sin begetting sin, consequences of sin in Israel were dealt with, and yet they did not in Israel deal with the root cause of sin. How many times in our own lives, how many times in your life have you not dealt with the root cause of sin so that the cycle comes back again and again? 
How many times have we, off, have we thought, well, if I only get this, if I only make people think that I'm okay in this area, or if they only see it when it's in the daytime, well, then that's fine. Then I've managed to sort of work everything out to my own advantage, and maybe God will bless me, and maybe others will praise me, and then everything will be fine. But Israel demonstrates here over, God demonstrates here through Israel, rather, that we cannot deal with sin lightly. We have to get down into the root cause, the primary motivations for sin. And that's why the larger catechism is so helpful in parsing out all the, all the implications of the Ten Commandments. Because we realize that these, they go far beyond where we simply think if, we're, if we are trying to make ourselves look good in the sight of others. Do you pray for the redemption even of your leaders? That's the problem in Israel at this time. There's a failure in leadership, a failure in morals, both on an individual level, but on a cultural level, a corporate level in Israel. So do you pray for the salvation of leaders in the U.S., in South Carolina, for those who are in positions of leadership? Because we need the salvation of those who are even above us. Do you pray for the salvation of neighbors, for co-workers, for even the culture itself? Or do we give up? Do we say, well, we've gone so far, it's past the point of no return? There is no such thing as far as God is concerned. He is always able to save. And so we see that God is demonstrating his presence even in the midst of total immorality, even in the midst of failure in leadership, but he's also doing it through the call of Barak. And you'll notice there, as Deborah is introduced, what does she do? Verse 6, she sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? And you'll notice this comes now in the first person. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people uh, of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I, this is God, will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots, his troops. And I, God, will give him into your hand. God is speaking even at a time where there is rampant wickedness in Israel. God still speaks. And God is commanding Barak to go, to march, to take these 10,000 soldiers because he is at work. God is promising not only that, not only is God commanding him to go, not only is he commanding him to take these men, but he's promising that when he does, what will God do? I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. There's the command and there's the promise, the covenant reminder that this is the stipulation. Do these things and I will be with you. Again and again, we see that coming through in this passage. So how does Barak respond? This, the response comes as a blow to us as we're reading this passage. It, it hits us right in the middle of our chest as we think about the implications of Israel's immorality. Leadership has failed. God is speaking and he's calling Barak to lead his people. If you go, Deborah, I will go. But if you won't go with me, then I'm not going to go. And it, it's a reminder to us that so often we can also deny God's presence when we condition our obedience. When our obedience is conditioned by all these things that have to take place in order for that obedience to follow. 
And we are not obeying God's commands as we ought. He's denying God's presence. He's denying that God is with him. He's trusting in man. He's trusting in her ability to save rather than God's ability to save. And ultimately, we see Deborah's response. I will surely go with you. And she does. But the glory will not be yours. The glory will be another's. In fact, it will not be anyone's glory. Whose is the glory? Glory is a woman's. And that draws out more this idea that it is not right that a woman is in leadership in Israel at the time. This, this sense that we get in this passage over and over that things are so bad that God is bringing about salvation even through jail, this Gentile woman. This woman who we know is the descendant, we read in 11, of the father-in-law of Moses, the Kenites. And yet, she is bringing about that salvation in the very end. She receives the glory we see in chapter 5. And so, ultimately, the question for us is, do you, do I, do we resist or do we question God's commands? Whether it's personally for evangelism, do we resist? Do we condition our response to his command that we go out and we evangelize the lost? Do we, as husbands, do you lead or counsel? Do you discipline your children faithfully? Or do you condition that leadership, that counsel, that discipline based on the time of the day, based on how your heart is feeling, based on all these things around the faithfulness, the response to God's command? Wives, do you encourage? Do you submit? Do you lovingly counsel your husband? Are we seeking the good of God's people? And ultimately, are we seeking to submit to God's command for our lives? Is, our tr is your trust in man? Or is your trust in your plans? Is your trust in other people's presence? Is your trust in circumstances, in human reassurances? Or is your trust in the Holy Spirit's constant assurance that you are his and he is yours. And so we come to the, the, really the turning point in this passage. Barak ultimately does obey. Verse 10, he called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, but Deborah is still with him. Notice this is still a conditioned obedience. Then we have Heber introduced in 11. We'll come back to that. Then in verse 12, we have the battle line set. Sisera draws down to the bottom of Mount Tabor. So you can picture the scene where Barak and Deborah are now on Mount Tabor. The armies have, have advanced there to the top of the mountain. And the armies of Sisera have now advanced to the bottom of the mountain, meeting there at Mount Tabor. Verse 14 then comes as the climax. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And you'll notice Barak's response. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him the first time that Deborah does not go with him. Because who goes before him? It is the Lord whose presence goes out before Barak. And this, I think, is the turning point really in the story because you see, notice then in verse 15 what happens. So the Lord routed. Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. And then verse 16, we get an interesting uh, discussion here, I think, of what we read out of our confession, chapter 5, that God uses means to bring about his holy ends. That the Lord routed, verse 15, and Barak pursued, verse 16, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God acts 
Barak acts. There is a means by which God brings about the salvation, the deliverance of his people. Yet God is completely sovereign. God is completely in control. And God even has determined up to this point the means of salvation. He tells Barak, bring 10,000, take them to the mountain. And he has also determined the strategy for the battle. All of these things God has done to remind Barak, I am with you. I go before you. I'm descending from the mountain and I have conquered Israel's enemies. So God's presence ought to then embolden us. If we are God's people, if we are called into his house even this evening, and we are, that we are reminded that his presence is with us. And that ought to strengthen you, dear brothers and sisters. That ought to embolden you to action. That ought to call you to remember the great things that the Lord has done. That the destruction of his enemies, as we've already read in chapter 5, brings him glory. And the restoration of his people brings, brings rest and peace and joy as, the, as that relationship is restored. And so, if we are his people, there is rest to be had. But I also want to, to warn those who may not trust in Christ... That if he is not your savior, if God is not your hope and your stay, if God is not king over your life, if you have not submitted and bowed the knee to Jehovah, then be forewarned. Be in fear because this is what he does to his enemies. It is not a partial destruction. It is a total annihilation of his enemies. And this ought to, as Christians, it ought to also bring a sober reminder to us that we preach a gospel that is not, it, it is not a, a gospel that simply is our words preached to men to save their souls so that they might have a better life, have better things here and now, that they might have a better community even at church, that they might have a fellowship, people to call when there's a baby due. But this is a reminder that these are eternal consequences. This is life and death that we deal with. And the gospel call is one that God gives to people, and he says, come, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. But if you do not come, be forewarned that this is the destruction. Hell is a reality that we need to preach. We need to be reminded in our own hearts. And so do you believe in God's presence this evening? Does it cause you to be resolved even to fight against your own sin? Because we know that sin leads even to death. The consequences of sin is death. Do you evangelize? Do you stand firm in the face of opposition? That's what Barak is called to do here. And so then we see that not only does God demonstrate his sovereign, or his, rather his saving presence, but he also demonstrates sovereign power. Charnick, Stephen Charnick, in that massive volume on the attributes of God, he has something in there that he says about power. And we see this, I think, brought about in this passage that the power of God makes alive and brings, um, brings a sense of being, if you will, to God's attributes. That, he, that God's power, if he, were, if he were simply present, but he were unable to save, that would be no, it would be no help to us. But because God is powerful, because he is able to save, that brings life. It brings health. It brings it brings a whole, a whole world of possibility in terms of salvation in heaven. Salvation for his people. And we see here salvation even from the leader of 
the armies against God's people, their enemies. So God demonstrates his saving power in three ways. First, through seemingly insignificant providences, by even the hand of a woman, Jael, and lastly, for his own glory. So look at, with me at these seemingly insignificant providences. Chapter, or verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. He had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. So essentially Heber had moved with Jael, his wife, from the south, Judah, where the Kenites were originally planted, and they moved up north to the land of Naphtali. We don't know exactly where, but somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. So all the way from the south, essentially to the north of Israel. And this move has now positioned the tent of Heber and Jael within walking distance of Sisera. A significant, or we might think an insignificant providence. And yet it makes all the difference. He is also, uh, God has also brought about peace with Jabin through Heber and Jael. How that came about, we don't exactly know. Was it because they're nomads? They were outside of their tribe. We don't know all the, all the details of this peace, but we know that Jael ultimately sides with God's people. And therefore, an insignificant providence is that God works in her heart to bring about the salvation of his people. And lastly, you notice even the, care, the quality that Jael assumes here is almost that of a mother with Sisera, to disarm him. If the peace didn't do that at first, even her attitude does. And so when we consider these things, do you trust in God's power to save sinners through even seemingly insignificant providences, through a move to a different part of the U.S., through a new baby, through a change in diet, or even exercise? All these opportunities that we have to evangelize the lost that we think are insignificant, or we might even think of them as disadvantages. Yet God uses, he uses each of these to bring about the salvation of his people. Whether it's talking to somebody at the gym, whether it's discussing with new neighbors about your experience and being able to get inroads and discussing the effects of the gospel and God's power to save sinners, or whether it's with a new baby and being able to welcome people, uh, asking for help with food or whatever it may be. Look for opportunities because God is at work even through these seemingly insignificant providences. Second, we see the hand of a woman here, Jael, of course. She is the ultimate fulfillment. Deborah is not the fulfillment of that prophecy, that it's the hand of a woman that will bring about, that will receive the glory. Jael and snares, we read in verse 21, she ultimately takes this tent peg, she kills Sisera. God brings about the salvation. 20 years Sisera had oppressed Israel. It's not insignificant that for 20 years, Think of anything that's gone on for 20 years in your life. That's a significant amount of time. And now God is bringing about salvation even through jail because of this move, because of all these details, these pieces that are working together in his holy providence. And then we get to verse 22. Behold, Barak pursue, even as he's pursuing Sisera, jail comes out to meet him and she says, come and I will show you the man whom you are pursuing. And so he went into her, and the Hebrew says there, and behold, there lay Sisera, dead with a tent peg in his temple. Behold and see what God has done. 
We, we are called to sit up and listen, to pay attention, to see here not only prophecy fulfilled from the beginning of the passage, but also that I, I can only imagine that Barak stood there with his mouth on the floor at what God had done. Here is this woman who, had, who was outside of her homeland, if you will, who had just come up from the south, and she is the one that God used I was supposed to do this thing. God had called me, and yet I hesitated, and yet I did not. I gave conditional obedience. God will use whatever means is necessary. God, his plans will never be thwarted. And it's a reminder to us, therefore, to trust. To trust and to never stop praising God for his salvation. To remind ourselves, to remind our children that God is at work. And that no matter the means, he will bring about his holy ends for his glory, for the good of his church, and for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. And so we see there then the glory of God displayed. Verse 23, if all of this seemed to you like chess pieces on a board and everybody has their own agenda, Deborah has hers, Barak has his, Jabin has his agenda, and Jael comes in at the end and she takes her vengeance. No. Verse 23, so God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And then we have here really a parallel, I think, between verses 22 and verse 24. That it's God who subdues Jabin before Israel, even as he had subdued Sisera before Barak. And then the hand of the people of Israel presses harder and harder against Jabin, and they destroy Jabin. And I can only imagine again that they are aghast at God's salvation. 20 years. And here they are, all of a sudden gaining victory. How is this possible? It's not. Only with God is this possible. With men, it is impossible. And so God subdues Jabin before Israel. They are staring at this God who we, we hear spoken of in Revelation 19. This God who in righteousness judges and makes war. This God who fulfills his promises from Deuteronomy chapter 7, that he would give their kings into the hand of Israel, that he would, that the people of Israel might make their name, or rather, that God might make the name of the Israelites uh, established on earth, and the name of their enemies perish from under heaven. God establishes his people, and God subdues his enemies. And so God uses weak vessels. We've seen it over and over throughout the passage. He uses Deborah, who's a prophetess, and she is in this position of authority because of the rampant wickedness in Israel. We've seen Barak, who offers conditional obedience. We've seen Jael, who is this foreigner, if you will, come and uprooted. But all of it we see in that perspective of 531, the very end of chapter 5 frames this passage, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let the righteous shine. Let the righteous shine like the sun. God's glory is displayed. God's people have victory, not because of who they are, but because of who he is, because of his just judgments that they are past finding out. Their enemies are destroyed, and his people become mighty like the sun. And so do you pray, brothers and sisters, believing that God will save his elect from evil, that God will save his people from even their sins, those sins that are besetting sins, 
over and over, 20 years of persecution, of, of oppression. Have you experienced that kind of oppression from God's enemy? 20 years of oppression over and over. God is able to save you from that kind of oppression as well. Salvation of God's people and the destruction of the wicked displays God's fearful omnipotence. His fearful power to save. His power to create. His power to destroy. And his power to show that he is God and that we are not. And God's ultimate demonstration of his presence and power is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is that ultimate that ultimate show, the demonstration, the picture of God's presence, Emmanuel, God with us. God showing that he is able to save the miracles that Christ did on earth, to heal the sick, to bring the dead to life, that he himself, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead for you and for I and for, and for me. That we are saved because God has done a work that we could not do. Jesus Christ has laid down his life for us. He has laid down his life for his people. And we see here demonstrated in chapter 4 the absolute humiliation of Christ. This is the world he came into. This is the nature of his people. People who run from him. People who are time and time and time again running to sin, thinking that it brings that siren call, that, remind, that, that somehow it glitters like gold. Yet God says, I call you to myself, not because you have anything in you worth saving, but because for my good pleasure, for my name's sake, for my glory, I'm drawing you to myself. I'm offering Christ even as a propitiation for your sin. And so God demonstrates then both his presence and his power by destroying Sisera and his army. We've seen then that that dual those dual attributes of God, presence and power, really permeate this passage. He is present with his people. He is able to save. And it's because he's able to save that his presence brings assurance and relief. Though the murky river is a far cry, I grant, from 900 chariots of iron. It's a far cry from 20 years of oppression. But it does draw out that point that we have a lot of things we could fear. There are many uncertainties in life. We may have besetting sins that need to be killed today, and that God, God tells us, commands us to lay at the feet of Christ and to kill actively. And he calls us to trust. He calls us to jump into the water because it is he who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. So be emboldened by his power. Be, be encouraged by his presence. Evangelize the lost. He will fulfill all of his covenant promises to you, his people, because he loves you and he has called you according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.